Entrepreneurship is about lifestyle design, first and foremost. And I think this has gotten missing in the world that we live in. The world that we live in now is Shark Tank is on every night, and people think it's all about like going out, raising money, working 24-7. And the reality is like that's not the story of most entrepreneurs in this country. Hello, and welcome to Shopify Masters, the podcast powered by Shopify, your companion for starting and building a business. I'm Shwang Estershan. How do you like your steak? Well done, medium rare, or even blue? How about grass-fed, raised without antibiotics or hormones, and delivered straight to your door? That's exactly how Mike Salguero likes it. So much so, in fact, that he has turned this idea into a multi-million dollar business. It's called Butcher Box. Maybe you have heard the name before. It's a subscription-based meat and seafood delivery service. And get this, it's done more than $500 million in revenue last year. Mike, such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to Shopify Masters. Thanks so much for having us. We're so excited to chat with you. First of all, congratulations on all of your incredible success. You're actually on your way to cross the $600 million mark for annual revenue this year. How incredible. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I, I, uh, when I started this back in 2015, it really was, uh, I anticipated it being a hobby. Um, I really was looking for something to do to fill my time in between uh, running a company and starting something else. And uh, this was just going to be my side hustle hobby that has turned into uh, quite the business. So in many ways, I failed at creating a little hobby business for myself. Um, But we clearly struck a nerve and um, have built something that a lot of a lot of customers really needed and really wanted. There were a lot of people who were looking for high quality meat uh, and looking for a brand that they could trust, and we happened to fill that need. Mm-hmm. And it's not an overnight success. And to your point, you wanted it to be a hobby. So, at which point did you realize, hey, this is something that could be something, and it, I need to give my full attention to it? Pretty quickly. So um, what we did is uh, I started working on this full-time around Memorial Day of 2015, and we launched a Kickstarter in September, early September of 2015. And within the first 24 hours, we had, uh, I think, 3 x our goal. We had gone out to raise 25000 in Kickstarter in pre-orders, and I think the first day we did about 75000 And so right from the start, from that first day, it was like, wow, I think we might be onto something here. Um, <clears throat> I had been running a company for about seven years before I started ButcherBox, and with that company, like things never seemed to work. Like we would try really hard, we'd launch a feature, we were really excited about it, and then it would be crickets. And so it was just a totally different feeling to feel like the snowball was um, rolling down the hill, and we were we were part of the snowball. So it it, it was quick to realize, hey, this is going to be um, this could be something. And then it it. While it was quick, it also obviously took a lot of time and energy and effort to uh, mold that snowball as it started going down the hill. So you list ButcherBox on Kickstarter and you see that it surpassed its goals within days. What was it about your campaign, the way you described your story that you think really resonated with people who backed your business? 
Yeah, so my first company was a, a two-sided marketplace. It was um, called custommade.com, and it was a marketplace for custom stuff. And so we had makers who made the stuff and consumers who wanted to buy the stuff. And so I went to school on two-sided marketplaces, so the the realms of Etsy and eBay. And um, there's these brief moments in time in two-sided marketplaces where there's an arbitrage to be had if you know how to play by the rules, if you know how to game it. Um, and I believe that Kickstarter was uh, rife for gaming. So we set out with a strategy to game Kickstarter. And at the time, the plan was um, Kickstarter has this like Kickstarter verified badge that you can get. And so we tried to deconstruct how do they give out those badges and then basically try to push our product in a way that would get that badge. Because once you have that badge, you show up on the homepage, you show up at the top of the food page, you get show up in emails, like they do all of this stuff for you. And they then do all the pushing rather than you having to get your audience to do it. So what we did is we came out of the gate with a low goal. We made sure that we were going to hit our goal within the first hour. We had reached out to Kickstarter to ask them for like help. We had done some PR stories. Like We did a whole bunch of things that we thought would encourage that badge. By day two, we had the badge, and then Kickstarter really did the rest. Like Within the first day, had kind of exhausted our network of people who were going to sign up for the Kickstarter because everyone did it on day one. But and so then the remaining 29 days were really driven by, and you know, the, the internet is rife with these types of arbitrage opportunities. Um, if you are smart and try to deconstruct things and don't just like use the playbook everyone else has, but really come up with your own. Um, and so we, we, we lucked out timing wise. It was, uh, a good time to launch on Kickstarter in 2015. And then we used that and the experience of running the Kickstarter and the success of that and parlay that into other arbitrage opportunities. Uh, One of the big ones was we noticed in Kickstarter that a paleo blogger, so a nutritionist, um, who told his audience to eat grass-fed beef, um, he didn't like he didn't tell them where to go to buy it. And so we reached out and said, hey, would you mention our Kickstarter? And he did, and we saw all these signups happen. And so then we just started uh, really trying to sign up all of these paleo authors and bloggers and newsletter writers to um, actively promote ButcherBox. Uh, and that was kind of arbitrage too, using influencers back in 2016 when um, influencers weren't, uh, weren't really a thing. And so, you know, we we started ButcherBox. I started as a hobby. We didn't raise any outside funding. We still to this day have uh, raised no outside funding. Um, and because of that, we needed to build a profitable from day one business model. You know, most of these box subscription companies are like, get a free box and then, you know, we'll charge you on the next one. Or we couldn't do any of those tactics. We had to basically build something that was profitable from day one. And partnerships and uh, influencers were the way that we were able to do that. And Kickstarter. Sounds like you really cracked the code with crowdfunding. And also you were really early to reaching out to those niche influencers and writers. So now that you generated all this demand, how did you actually create the network of farmers and trusted partners to deliver the goods? Yeah, very, very carefully. Um, So ButcherBox today... We do beef, chicken, pork, bison, and then on the seafood side, we do a whole bunch of seafood, but um, salmon, 
halibut, cod, lobster, scallops. Um, And each of these species has its own unique characteristics, its own supply chain, and its own things that you really need to be looking out for to make sure that you're bringing the customer the highest quality, humanely raised product you can. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it totally depends on the species. But what we did when we started was we had found a distribution center in Wisconsin, and they had some connections with some grass-fed beef producers in Iowa and some pork producers in Iowa and some chicken producers in Pennsylvania and kind of helped us put all the pieces together. And we were buying directly from this company. And as we got bigger, we started doing our own... Um, you know, basically finding our own suppliers, having our own relationships with suppliers and building out a program. Uh, What we look for in terms of our suppliers is um, first and foremost, antibiotic and hormone free. So never ever, which means that the animals raised in our program have never been administered an antibiotic. So if they get sick and they're given an antibiotic, they get taken out of our program. Humane certification is really important to us. So how the animal was treated um, from kind of birth all the way through to uh, their last day. And then we were looking at kind of environmental outcomes. Uh, how, how important is the environmental stuff to, um, to our producers? We're looking at how the farmers treated. Sometimes we're buying from uh, a collective of farmers, so we want to make sure the farmers treated well. And all of that um, rolls into what we believe is a much better product for the end customer. So my belief is that the average customer who eats meat right now wants to make sure that the product honors the animal, the environment, the farmer, the workers in the supply chain, that all of those things are important. And what our brand stands for is a company that will go to the ends of the earth to find the best possible product and make the decisions on what's important here to bring an an amazing, high-quality product to customers. And we're trying to do that at a scale that makes it accessible. I think what's also amazing is that your unique set of challenges is very different from the typical merchant on Shopify, right? Like, you found these partners, but, like, how did you test and how did you ensure that everything was working smoothly in the early days that this perishable good is going to show up exactly how you intended to do um, for all the customers that have this demand. Yeah. um, So the reality is that when we ship out a product, there is some sort of failure rate um, because of weather, because if a package is late, it doesn't necessarily stay frozen. And so a lot of the work that we do is trying to drive down the failure rate as low as humanly possible and making sure that if there is a failure and the customer calls in to complain or writes in to complain, that we take care of them. Um, so those numbers are things that we track on a, on a weekly basis. They get worse in the summer, for example, because you know it's, summer's hotter, so a box of frozen meat in the summer is uh, even tougher to ship. Um, but... We also, um, you know, like this is this is where we as a company balance between things. So when we got into the company in 2015, the industry essentially shipped boxes of frozen meat uh, with styrofoam and then dry ice on the inside. So if you bought from Omaha Steaks, you'd get this big styrofoam cooler. Styrofoam is not great for the environment. Uh, it's hard to recycle. It's hard for people to throw out. 
and we did not want to ship with styrofoam. We started the first half of a year shipping in styrofoam because we didn't really have any other options because we hadn't yet figured out how to how to do this in a cardboard box. But, you know, so we made the trade-off of using a product that we thought was inferior in order to get the um, company up and off off the ground. And so we're constantly, I think if you're, if you're a mission-focused company or a B Corp company like we are and you care about your footprint, you care about your environmental f- footprint, your social footprint, you just care about your impact, um, there's oftentimes trade-offs that you need to make in order to uh, keep delivering a product. And I think that's like a really important um, story or analogy is, you know, when we started and we were shipping in the styrofoam cooler, I had friends who were like, I can't believe you're shipping a styrofoam. Like, how do you sleep at night knowing that you're, you know, shipping all these styrofoam boxes? And I'm like, well, I'm not trying to disrupt the styrofoam industry. I'm trying to disrupt meat. And you need to like really stay focused on what's important to you and have a long-term time horizon to fix the other problems that um, you know are a little bit out of alignment with what you are trying to do. So another big component about staying profitable in your business model is relying on third-party partnerships. So whether it's us, Shopify, and your other partners, can you share why it was so important for you to not build everything yourself and actually establish these partnerships? The way that we built this company and did it in a capital-efficient manner was to partner with third parties everywhere that we could. And so to this day, um, we have third-party farms, third-party processing facilities, third-party stake-cutting facilities, third-party distribution facilities, um, third-party shippers, third-party customer service, uh, and third-party technology. Uh, and on the technology side, when we started, we were just looking at um, Stripe subscription on top of WordPress, and really just built for simplicity, so that we could, you know, basically find engineers all over the world who could help us with it, and just kind of built from there. And that platform still exists. We're, you know, running about six hundred million dollars a year through a platform that was not designed to do that. Um, and so last year we really started looking at like, okay, what are our options here? Like, do we, uh, spend time ripping this apart and rebuilding it and recoding it ourselves? Or do we do what we've done in all other aspects of the company and find the best in class third party, um, company to partner with? And I built this company on um, having robust partnerships with great companies who do incredible work. And that's what we saw in Shopify. We saw a company that really cared about performance, cared about conversion, cared about the site being easy to build on. And then there's a, a very exciting ecosystem around Shopify where... You know, some of the things that t- would take us like two months to do are like literally a plugin. It's like, oh yeah, you just like kind of flip the switch and it it, it works. Um, and so w- when I look at ButcherBox as a company, our like we're we're a D 2 C um, online butcherbox.com uh, company, but our our company's not really a tech company. Um, we are a product company. We have an amazing product. 
We're a data company. We have amazing members and consumers who we want to uh, send great deals or inspire to cook another meal, but we're not really like a tech company. And so having a platform that is ours, uniquely ours, like it actually doesn't make a lot of sense. It's kind of um, spending money in the wrong spot. So we, uh, we think long and hard about the products we're introducing, the farms we're working with. We think long and hard about the data and about you know how do we delight our customers. Um, and for us, moving with a company like Shopify enables us to kind of offload the things that we're not best in class at so we can focus on the things that we are best in class at. So after all this amazing chapters of growth, we do want to ask, there's fellow founders new to the business world. They want to start a food subscription business like yours. What are some key tips you want to share for them? Yeah, so key tips on food subscription businesses or entrepreneurship in general. Um, So first and foremost, the thing that I think most entrepreneurs don't do and really need to. Um, You need to spend time up front visioning out what your life looks like three to five years from now. Are you going to an office? Are you staying at home? Do you do a hard workout before you go into work? Do you not? I I oftentimes uh, assign people to go take a walk in the woods with a notebook and really try to clear your mind and sit by a tree and just write down, let your heart talk and write down, like, where are you in three to five years? Because entrepreneurship is about lifestyle design, first and foremost. And I think this has gotten missing in the world that we live in. The world that we live in now is... Shark Tank is on every night and people think it's all about like going out, raising money, working 24/7 and like trying to make it. And the reality is like that's not the story of most entrepreneurs in this country. The story of most entrepreneurs in this country is they they have a lifestyle. Like it's a it's a lifestyle first and a job second. And if you're missing that benefit, that juicy benefit of entrepreneurship, then you're missing the point, in my opinion. So just to start with, like, okay, great, you have some food subscription company that you think is interesting. Have you spent time thinking about what your life looks like? Because don't just start a company because you think the idea is good and then just become a slave to that idea. Like that is what a lot of people do and it's a trap. Uh, Which brings me to my second point, which is I think hustle culture is um, a total lie and is um, really detrimental. Entrepreneurs, lots of entrepreneurs believe that they have to work 24 7, 365 days a year with no breaks. Uh, They have to sacrifice time with their family. They have to sacrifice their health. They have to sacrifice a whole bunch of stuff in order to be successful. That's not how it works. The most successful entrepreneurs that I know spend um, most of their time working on themselves. Um, And it is a lie propagated by the media. That like you need to you know give up everything and sleep under your desk in order to be successful. That's not true. And then the third is you don't have to raise money. I oftentimes hear from people who are like, "Man, I I uh, I, I want to start this company, but I don't know how to raise five hundred grand." And it's like, "Well, do you like do you actually need to raise that money?" And again, you know, if you go on to the standard kind of tech press. 
what you see is funding story after funding story after funding story. They're just like constant stories of companies getting funded. One of the reasons for that, which people don't really know, is that you can get a feed of all the SEC um, you know, filings. So any company that's raising money has to file with the SEC, and uh, you, journalists get a feed of that. So it's actually really easy journalism to write about funding stories. But what it neglects is all of the stories of people who have bootstrapped companies from, from nothing into something bigger and have done it on their own terms. You know, one of the things about 10 years ago, if you were like going to start a company, one of the things that you had to pay for was your website. Companies like Shopify have removed that as a barrier to starting a company. You can quite literally start a company um, in a, working a couple hours or over a weekend, spinning something up, plugging in a few plugins, and, you, and you're up and ready to go. And so, you know, I think uh, my hope is that we become more capital efficient as entrepreneurs and we 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 really see the path of like controlling your own destiny, lifestyle design, living the life you want to live and not necessarily just diluting yourself, selling a piece of your company, working yourself to the bone and hoping for good results. It was when I gave up that lie and started believing in, you know, living the life I want to live, that's when things started to work. I think your answer is essentially why we do the show, because you're offering this alternative narrative that sometimes maybe major media outlets don't feature. And um, yeah, such great advice. I do want to drill in on the subscription piece, because I think, especially now, people in the entrepreneurship space are saying, you know, People are moving away from D2C model. People are moving away from subscriptions. People are oversubscribed, whether it's streaming services, delivery services, what have you. So I guess what are some of the tips on that realm for people who do want to build a profitable and reliable business model within the subscription space? For sure. So the main number that you're looking at in a subscription business is your lifetime value and your acquisition cost. So your lifetime value, what is that? That is defined as the margin that you make off of that customer over their lifetime. So if you're a subscription dog food company and you make $25 a month that the customer is a customer and the average customer lasts for 10 months, you've made $250 in lifetime value on that customer. Um, and then what you want to be looking at is how much did it cost to acquire that customer and then looking at the return profile of your customer acquisition cost to lifetime value ratio. The ideal scenario is that you don't like not everyone leaves after 10 months, but you have people who stay. And so you're looking at, okay, I acquired a customer at month zero. Within two months, they repaid me. Um, like meaning you've covered your acquisition costs by the margin that you've made off that customer, and then everything beyond that is gravy. Where I see a lot of people kind of fail in subscription businesses is, for one, they spend a lot of time on how to drive down acquisition costs, but not a lot of time on how to increase lifetime value. Increasing lifetime value is by far the easier one to do. Um, you can always get better at how you're acquiring customers, but Increasing lifetime value is one part like negotiating everything associated with shipping out that box, right? So did you negotiate the shipping rates? Did you negotiate your credit card fees? 
negotiate everything because every dollar that you save can be huge. So that type of thinking or, and also like, how do you get somebody not to quit at 10 months, but go to 11 months or go to 12 months? Can you throw in a freebie? Lots and lots of great fruit to be found in the realm of like, how do we get a better product to our customer cheaper? So much great and tactical advice. I'm very excited to learn more, Mike. I'm chatting with Mike Salguero, the founder and CEO of ButcherBox. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you haven't already, please follow and subscribe to Shopify Masters wherever you're listening. And please leave us a review or feedback for the show. Thanks. So ButcherBox has scaled remarkably and you know, we imagine that there's a huge increase to cost and also other components of the business as you scale. So how did you adjust um, throughout the different chapters of change? Yeah, well, um, there there are increases in cost, but there are also decreases in cost. So as you grow uh, a product um, and get and buy more of it, you get more efficiencies with scale. So we've been enjoying a lot more efficiencies, certainly in in our product like meat, than we were before. So uh, an example is the average tractor trailer, so the average truck, 18-wheeler truck, um, carries 40,000 pounds of product, right? So if you are small and let's say you want want to ship out 5,000 pounds of hamburger meat over the next month, well, you basically have to run that truck pretty empty. Um, you can maybe get on an LTL, or which means like you're you're just paying for the one pallet space, but the truck itself is fairly empty, and so that's really inefficient. And so the cost to run that truck, let's say it costs five thousand dollars to move it halfway across the country. Now the cost of your ground beef went up by a dollar versus when you can put 40,000 pounds on there, way more efficient, right? And so there are gains to be had. There are lots of gains to be had in that, in that realm. The increases in costs are like hiring more people or needing to buy more inventory or, um, you know, uh, once you get to a certain company size, you need to offer more benefits or, you know, get fancier office space or some of these other things that um, do cost money. But if if you build into the DNA, like we we have never had a backstop because we never raised money. So in the DNA of the company is kind of like, well, we got to make it work, um, and that is, uh, yeah, that that has just continued, um, and that that drives us is like, how do we maintain profitability and do things efficiently? Um, because our, our our customers are kind of relying on us to do that. Another side of scaling is increasing your marketing efforts or adjusting it. We talked about early days of working with influencers, crowdfunding. Were there any other tactics that really helped you in the early days or scaling process uh, to market ButcherBox? Oh, yeah. Um, Well, I mean, we... We were always so we again we had to be box one profitable, which meant we had to um, get profitability on on uh, the first box, and we ran like that for like two years. So it was a lot of like partnerships. It was a lot of sharing of email lists with other companies. It was a lot of just figuring out ways to get the word out about us. 
And uh, that worked well for a while. And then the next big arbitrage that we found was Facebook, uh, and specifically Facebook video. So I believe it was 2017, we noticed, um, I noticed just using Facebook, that it, it seemed like my wall or my timeline, I, don't, I think it's called a timeline now, um, was filled with videos. Um, and it was no longer like photos or posts. It was mostly videos. And so my hunch was that they were prioritizing video content because it, they wanted it to be a more immersive video-esque experience. And so based on that kind of hunch, we started advertising um, with video. And uh, it worked really, really well. We ended up getting super low cost per, to acquire a customer um, with video content instead of static photos or, um, or, or text. And so we, um, we saw that work really well. We also uh, started looking at the deals that we were offering people. So we, we would always have like, hey, sign up today and get free bacon in your first box or sign up today and get free ground beef in your first box. Well, we decided that we were going to try this, um, this concept of bacon for life. And the idea was you sign up and you're going to get bacon in every box that we send you for you know, your entire subscription. And uh, it worked incredibly well. Um, so we were changing the offer, we were changing the medium that we were using, and all of it was really trying to dial in on how do we acquire customers and how do we do it uh, cheaply and efficiently, but also acquire the right customers because you want customers who are going to stay. Um, you don't want customers who get one box and then leave. I love that because you're raising the value for the customer without lowering your profitability or the cart value. So, um, you know, we talked about Facebook video and that's kind of the marketing strategy that has worked in the past. Looking forward and also the present day, what channels and what marketing strategies are you investing in now? Yeah, I mean, marketing has changed dramatically over the past year and a half. I would say that we're spending a lot of our time trying to figure out what the next frontier is, like where can we play? And we have not come up with like, oh, this is this is an area that we can really pour resources into. Um, so we're we're in a space right now of really figuring out the next avenue for growth. And the most exciting thing for us as a company right now in terms of avenues for growth is um, we really want to get into the bricks and mortar side of the world. So when you look at the stats on uh, grocery store penetration, online grocery store penetration, post-COVID we're sitting at about 11.5% of the overall population who will regularly buy groceries online. But when you actually look at the data, it's about 75% um, is, uh, of that is click and collect or kind of the Instacarts of the world, right? So click and collect is you put in an order and then you drive to the grocery store. You just don't get out of your car and it gets delivered to you. Or you have someone else do the grocery shopping for you and deliver it to your house. Um, both of which are basically grocery shopping. You just kind of outsource the actual walking up and down the aisles. Right, so what you're left with for people like us is 25% of 11.5%, which is you know two to three percent of the overall population. Very small percentage of people. And so when we think about our advertising, so we do podcasts, we we're on TV, we do tons of online stuff. 
when we think about our advertising, actually only being able to hit 3% of the overall market and 97% still want to buy at grocery stores, for us, we're like, shit, we got to be in the grocery store. Um, and so we're spending a lot of our time right now um, working with different grocery stores to figure out the types of programs that we can put together. I'm, I'm very bullish on that for uh, the years to come. So I think one of the threads or the common themes we talked throughout this whole episode is the fact that you are self-funded. And we've talked to founders who might have stayed self-funded across a seven-figure mark, maybe eight-figure mark. Um, but to reach your level of annual revenue and stay self-funded, can you just tell us a bit about the decision behind it and how were you able to manage being self-funded for so long at this scale? I think that it really comes back to our mission. So as a company, ButcherBox has a mission of transforming meat. We agree with those that say, hey, meat, like the way these animals are being raised, the way that they're being treated is not sustainable. Uh, We agree with that. It's not sustainable. And what we are trying to do is to build a brand that's known for doing the right thing as it relates to raising the animals, paying farmers a living wage, uh, honoring the environment, honoring the workers in the supply chain, all of those things we take into account and obsess about and try to improve every single day. And one of the things that's changed for me is when I started this company, it was supposed to be a hobby. And then it started taking off and I'm like, okay, great, I'm going to sell it. Like, I'm just going to sell it and make money and then I'm just going to be able to do something else. And the longer we've gone, the more I'm like, you know, this, this might be my life's work. And I have no idea why we've been put in a position where like things just worked in our favor and we built this big company and we did it unfunded But now is, in my opinion, not necessarily the time to change our approach. So yeah, have people approached us and, you know, private equity shops trying to buy half of our company? Absolutely. But my fear is that we won't be able to satisfy the mission. And I think that we, as a company, this little company, this little, you know, side project, hobby company that has grown into something big, we actually are making like real change in an industry that is desperate for change. And that to me just further reinforces like, don't go raise money right now. Like, you know, obviously if we had to, we would, but like uh, now's not the time. But now's the time to like really activate our mission and take advantage of the fact that we are in this very unique spot with no outside investors, no one breathing down our neck, where we can go and do the right thing. The other thing is like as a food company, if you look at brands, iconic food brands that you know, outside of meat, just like any iconic food brand, the majority of these companies are like a hundred plus years old. The Campbells of the world and the Heinz of the world and Hershey's of the world. And you know, like these companies have been built over like centuries. And so for us to believe that we can build an iconic food brand in under 10 years and like have everyone know us and love us, and um, that is uh, not really feasible. Like things move faster in the age of the internet, but they don't move that fast, especially not in food, which is like somebody is choosing to, you know, serve your product to their family. It's a pretty sacred relationship and it's going to take time. And so what happens if you don't raise money? 
And if you don't have a time horizon, and if you don't care about selling or go, going public, what happens is you can have an infinite time horizon. So we look at it and say, hey, what does this company look like in 25 years? How about 100 years? So beyond my lifetime, what does this company look like? And that's just a fun place to play in because what it does is it frees up your thinking. It's like, oh yeah, let's let's launch this program, but this, it might take 10 years. It's like, okay, well, no time like now to get started. And if we're actually set on disrupting meat or transforming meat, like that's a big undertaking. And that is not something that can happen overnight. And I just don't see, I, I, I've yet to meet an investor who has the appetite for that type of hold. I'm sure they're out there, but in the meantime, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing, which is self-funding ourselves. Well, amazing. Thank you so much for being candid and open with your experience, Mike. My pleasure. That's Mike Salguero, the founder and CEO of ButcherBox. I'm Schwang Esser-Shan, and I'll see you next time on Shopify Masters.